in the mental health field too often. We've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in your head. The landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We can have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to It's Not Just In Your Head, a podcast by two mental health professionals talking about capitalism and mental health or how the economic and political systems around us impact our emotional, inner, interpersonal lives. I'm Max Golding, LMFT, fancy therapist. We have wonderful Harriet Fraud, PhD. And uh, and I'm going to pass it to Harriet in just a second, but we always try in the very beginning so we don't forget to thank our patrons. So thank you, uh, First Winter, Sarah Turner, Rebecca Johns, Justin Harper, Bandila Msimanga, Evan Lee, and Ashley. And always a big thank you to Liam for the editing, social media, the back-end invisible stuff that keeps things going. And that is all for me. Now I'll shut up. Harriet, who is this wonderful guest, Bob Hall, we have today? This wonderful guest is Bob Hall, who speaks around the country, who's given all sorts of workshops on conflict literacy. And he deals with addiction, uh, with issues of addiction, violence, and conflict. And he's particularly expert in the kind of sexual violence that has occurred in our society and continues to do so in rather high-profile manner. So welcome, Bob. Nice to be here. Good. Now, we have some questions for you, and we'll take off from there. Mm -hmm. So the first one is, what is your conflict literacy expert from the conflict literacy group? What is that? Yeah, well, I guess to, to start with, um, I, I coined the term conflict literacy uh, a number of years ago because uh, I, I wasn't, first of all, satisfied with the name of the field that I trained in, which was conflict resolution. And uh, to me, the, the notion of conflict resolution is a very Western idea because basically it's about holding on to control driven by fear. And it says, okay, there's conflict, that's bad, what are we going to do about it? And of course, we're going to resolve it. And that, <laughs> that basically speaks to this idea that we understand it well enough and that we are capable of jumping in and you know, knocking it down like a set of bowling pins. Uh, and again, it, it's, it's, it's a real... It's really that term, conflict resolution, is based on this cultural assumption that, of course, we're in control, so we can do this. And so from, from the time I uh, got my training in my field, um, I, I kind of had a question about the name of this field because uh, it seemed to me uh, a rather uh, dubious characterization of, of what conflict was and what we were supposed to do with it. And so uh, when I first got my training, um, I basically went in saying either I'm missing something or they're missing something. And I certainly missed a lot, uh, or I certainly learned a lot in, in the process of, uh, of doing my, my degree in, in conflict studies, what I, what I call conflict studies, what they call conflict resolution. But I, I guess the conclusion I came to is that uh, uh, they were missing something in terms of the way yeah. the field was initially named. And in 1987, I started my my initial company, which was called Learning to Live with Conflict, which was basically uh, my gentle thumb in the eye to uh, <laughs> the field that had been de- developed in a very particular way. And one of the things about my characterization is that, you know, 
conflict, conflict resolution uh, almost has a negative connotation to it because it basically says conflict is bad and what we need to do with it is resolve it, to kind of kill it off, death by resolution. And my idea or my notion was that actually, you know, au contraire, conflict is actually good. In fact, it's absolutely necessary. Uh, I mean, even learning is a conflict process. In fact, all of learning is a conflict process. You come into your first math class ignorant, you're exposed to information. You know, what's two plus two? Wait a minute, teach, back up. What's a two? Yeah. So you first have to learn uh, numbers and counting and the relationship between those numbers. And then once you learn that, then you begin to take the new learning that you have and use that as a building block to be ignorant on a new level. Uh-huh. And then to be exposed to new information again, which creates another conflict, which enables you to address it, learn from it, grow from it, change from it. And each one of those, if you can picture it, is like a pyramid building on the one below. Um, at, you know, The two corners of the pyramid at the bottom are ignorance and information that come in conflict with each other. And the top of the pyramid uh, is the resolution, if you will, or the new learning which, you know, kind of closes one door and opens a door of learning on a new level that says, okay, now I know numbers. Now um, I can be exposed to arithmetic, and that'll make sense. Once I know arithmetic, I can be exposed to multiplication and division, and then calculus and trigonometry and geometry and all the other building blocks that go up from there. And the beauty of what conflict is all about is that this learning process that is really what conflict is there for uh, is unlimited. Yeah. It, it goes on forever. But when we say conflict resolution, we build a very small box to put this pheno- this human phenomenon into. And it limits our imagination. It limits what we can do with it. And uh, it, it limits our vision for what intervention looks like when it comes to dealing with conflict. I would like to ask a question that has ramifications in the outer world and in the personal world of Americans at this moment, which is how does that play in the world and how does it play in the world of American relationships? Well, and this this is interesting because, you know, one of the problems with the conflict resolution field is then, you know, I, I used to, I used to, uh, uh, I mean, I was working with people in the field in my graduate uh, work, and then you would go out into the world and be exposed to other people who heard the term conflict resolution, and you almost saw in their eyes their arms folding up and their face uh, and head cocked in a position that said, oh, really? <laughs> As though you're going to fix this. And uh, I'm, I'm reminded of a story of a, uh, one of my fellow grad students who was uh, doing an internship as a mediator. And she was doing a mediation one time with two twin sisters who were in their 60s. And at one point in the mediation, one of the sisters slammed her hand down on the table and said, Honey, I don't know what you think you're doing here, but we've been at it for 60 years. And if you think you're going <laughs> to pack this up and send it away overnight, you got another thing coming. And what she, what she began to wonder after that is, what actually am I doing here? What do I think I'm doing? And what she began to realize was that she wasn't really there to resolve a conflict. She was there to facilitate a process that would hopefully help them to learn and grow and change 
in ways that we're going to make uh, in in ways that we're going to make the, the lives of these folks better than they were before. But as far as resolution, she felt like first of all that wasn't her job, and you know I mean so, sometimes the best people can do in a conflict is learn that there's some, let, let, let's say uh, it, the, w- the way we used to me- uh, measure mediation programs, and I'm sorry if I digress here a little bit, but uh, in the early days of the conflict resolution field, uh, mediation was one of the main applications. And the way we funded mediation centers was to say, okay, how many cases did you hear last year? How many resolutions did you get? Okay, that meets our threshold, you're funded. And that enables us to institutionalize this process we call conflict resolution. But what does it really have to do with what we're trying to do when we intervene to affect change in the lives of people? And um, what it does is it says conflict is always definable. And if we get creative and problem solved, there's always a resolution. And if we're successful and we succeed and we're in control, we can affect change and create that resolution and you know then then we can check off the box that says success you know we've we've stayed we've held on to control driven by the fear of what would happen if we weren't in control and you know that then we then we can resolve the conflict but what happens in a mediation you know a lot of mediation in mediation research they would talk to mediators that would say you know we spent two hours in mediation we did uh, the, the whole formula, uh, Fisher and Urey, the getting a yes, problem-solving orientation to conflict. Um, what's, what's the problem? We do brainstorming, we engage in problem-solving, and we come up with a consent agreement of everybody agrees, here are the solutions to the problem, and here's what we're going to do. Everybody signs the agreement, and we're out the door, and everybody feels good, including the mediator, because they fixed it. They solved the problem. But sometimes in mediation... All that was able to happen was that in a two-hour mediation, one party in the conflict to the conflict was able to come to terms with the fact that they might have a problem with alcohol <laughs> or huh. drugs or sex or work or spending or gambling or any number of other addictions or other you know, attitudes, beliefs, behaviors in their lives. And under the problem-solving orientation to mediation, that's a failed mediation. Oh, because they didn't actually go through the whole process, identify issues, solve problems. So that's a failed mediation. But according to a conflict, what I would call a conflict literate take on mediation, um, mediations are an opportunity to facilitate learning and growth in the parties. And that mediation where all that came out of it was the fact that one person has an issue with alcohol to deal with. That's a success. Mm-hmm. It doesn't solve all the problems, but it sends you on the way. Mm-hmm. And what it basically also does is open up our experience of what is, quote unquote, supposed to happen in a mediation. If a mediation can facilitate an opportunity for learning and growth with the parties, then the parties actually have to decide whether or not they're ready, willing, and able to take that opportunity. They may not be ready or willing or able to hear what's really going on that may be causing whatever conflict they signed up to come to mediation for. Mm. So if we define conflict, the conflict field, the work of the conflict field as being resolution, we, we dramatically limit and actually sabotage the unique opportunity that, that conflict provides in people's lives for learning and growth. Well, if we take that, that, very wonderful insight 
into the therapy field, then how, how does that work between people and a therapist, between an individual and a therapist, between a couple and a therapist? Can you translate that into this field that our listeners and we are more involved in? Um, hmm. That wasn't on the list of questions. No, no, that's fine. That's <laughs> fine. Um, so how, how would that, tra- well, uh, basically saying, I, I, I believe if, if I'm familiar with the therapeutic process uh, or to the degree that I am, that uh, in therapy, when somebody brings a problem into therapy, um, uh, what I guess I would characterize as a good therapist is not going to say, oh, we can fix that. <laughs> mm-hmm. What they're oh, going to do. I've never what, said that. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm very proud. What, what, what I think uh, a therapist is going to do is uh, maybe, first of all, they say something like, tell me more. They want to get some context. They want to get some understanding. And also, you know, the words the person uses, uh, the, the stories they bring up, all of these things are going to be fodder for um, understanding what it is that that is being dealt with, and then maybe exploring it, uh, deciding not to judge it as good or bad or right or wrong, but trying to understand it better, all in the service of, I guess, learning and growth, and and toward toward any number of ends. Um, but I think therapy is probably designed to open things up rather than to close them down. It certainly is, and it's also designed to explore interpersonal conflicts so the conflicts you have with yourself well and, and that's what's that's what's interesting too because to me you know I in my in my seminars and workshops I would always say you know uh, you can't give away what you don't have right. uh, the way you deal with yourself has everything to do with how you deal with other people uh, and you may have I'm, I'm sure in 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 the therapeutic world uh, the expression has been used uh, that hurt people hurt people Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, if I've been hurt, then I see the world as a dangerous and scary place. And how do I defend myself in a dangerous and scary place? Uh, when I walk out the door, I put my dukes up. I've got my defenses in line, and I'm ready to deal with whatever's coming because I see the world as a dangerous and scary place, and I need to be prepared. What does prepared mean? Prepared means ready, willing, and able to shield myself and to strike when I need to. And so it, it, it creates that, you know, traumatic experience creates a certain experience of what the world is and what I'm supposed to do with it. And so, um, and, and I guess this is why I, part of, part of what I was, was after in terms of the way we think about conflict is, um, you know, how we're dealing with other people out in the world. That's usually where we focus with conflict because mm-hmm. what's, what's he doing? You know, what's somebody mm-hmm. else done in a situation? Right. But oftentimes we don't focus on ourselves because oftentimes the way we're treating ourselves um, is as bad as what we're doing with other people or, or maybe it's aggressive or hostile or, or uh, destructive, um, mm-hmm. we, which is, I guess, where we get to what I would call uh, conflict literacy. And, um, you know, first of all, I, I like to tell people that I, I see conflict literacy as a choice in how we respond to what we call conflict. And, you know, people always ask for a definition of conflict. My first thought about a definition of conflict is, okay, something's wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Something's not the way I want it to do or I want it to be. Uh, what do I do now? Mm-hmm. And conflict literacy is about the choice that we make in responding. And uh, can I tell a story? Sure. 
please. There's a, there's a really cool story that uh, I, one of my earlier mentors, a guy named Tom Crum, who is a, an Aikido master who wrote a book called The Magic of Conflict. And I was introduced to his book right in the same year that I started my company, Learning to Live with Conflict. And I, I immediately gravitated toward his work because at the time, he seemed to be the only other person out there that I was hearing talk about conflict in a positive light. I was talking about learning to live with conflict as though conflict could actually be something good and useful to embrace. And he was talking about the magic of conflict, how conflict could actually, you know, perform magic. It could do something that was transformative. And um, anyway, um, so uh, there's the, the, the story that he told about uh, the wise monk and the samurai. And the samurai... Um, was, well, the samurai was an aggressive man, and he had a lot of fears, and the way he'd learned to deal with his fear was to train and to become uh, a master swordsman and a warrior. And so he had a particular way of approaching conflict, whether that was with other people or internal conflict. And so um, ignorance was something that frightened him. And so one day he was imagining uh, uh, the question about, you know, uh, uh, and uh, boy, I'm, I'm ruining this story here a little bit, but let me, let me just jump through it here. Um, the, the, he was wondering about the difference between heaven and hell, and he decided that he was going to climb the mountain and talk to the wise monk. So he climbed up to the mountain and confronted the monk, and he didn't, he didn't humbly go to him and ask him the question. He came to the monk in a position of strength and demanded the answer, tell me the difference between heaven and hell. And the monk immediately responded by saying, get out of my sight, you ignorant fool. You disgust me. <laughs> and at that moment, the samurai in rage drew out his sword, ready to lop off the head of the monk. Mm. And at that moment, the monk turned to him and said, that's hell. Mm. Ooh. And... In the, in the blink of an eye, the samurai processed what had just happened and realized that the monk had just risked his life in order to impart a teaching. Mm. And with that, he dropped his sword, dropped down to his knees, and bowed in front of the monk. At which, at which point, the monk turned to him and said, and that's heaven. Mm. And what that story brings out has a lot to do with, you know, how we often approach conflict. If we approach conflict from a point of fear, oftentimes the immediately where we go to is attack or defense, fight or flee. Mm -hmm. And when we're in that mode, we, we basically turn off our ability to be open and humble and understanding of what's going on. We are, we are in a mode of, you know, we're in the, we're in the reptilian brain that yeah. fight or flight mode. And we really limit our ability uh, to experience the fullness of that conflict for what it is. And we limit our ability to learn and grow and change from it. Let me ask you this. Uh, do you remember a class that you were in as a child and the teacher was really strict yeah. and they were very, you know, very discipline oriented and boy, you could hear a pin drop when that teacher walked into the room and the kids were afraid and mm -hmm. nobody wanted to give the wrong answer. 
when the teacher asks a question under those circumstances, who in their right mind is going to reach their hand up and volunteer an answer unless they are absolutely 100% sure that the answer is correct? Yeah. And what they've done is they've created a hostile environment that makes it very unsafe for the student to take risks. So what's predominant, what's mainly going to happen in that classroom is fear and not a lot of learning. But when you have an environment in a classroom where the teacher is open and they create a friendly atmosphere and we're here to discover and to learn and to grow and, you know, whatever you have to say is welcome. And from that point of view, the student is more than likely going to be wanting to take risks or, or more comfortable taking a risk of giving a wrong answer because they've learned in this classroom from this teacher that we're going to learn as much from the wrong answers we get as the right ones that we get. And any good scientist will tell you that. That's a whole approach that I take in couples counseling, where the basic idea is to make sure everyone, listen, both parties, listen to one another rather than one party deciding to rehearse the comeback and put the other one down while the first one is talking, that everyone has to listen. Each party listens to the other, then says what they heard and what it meant to them. And so that there's a processing of actually acknowledging that in this conflictual order, there, there are things you can learn rather than just rebutting. The things. And I think in therapy, what you try to strive for is to deal with the internal conflicts we have in a compassionate, listening way, rather than as a set of misbehaviors of which to be ashamed. Yes. Yeah, and you know one of the, one of the other uh, interesting things that I discovered over time in in, in thinking about conflict with this is that you know uh, perception shapes reality. Uh, the way we think about things actually you know uh, creates uh, the, the view of the world we have actually creates the world that we view that we live in, and in a lot of ways the way we perceive, process, and respond to conflict really matters. Um, the, the way I came to think about it in my early years as I was working with this stuff and trying to, to discover what I thought I knew, um, you know, uh, in, in, in having conversations with people, my sense is that, you know, most of world history, with the exception of a lot of indigenous cultures around the world, has been based on a perception of conflict as fight. Mm -hmm. And uh, to me, to me uh, we either see conflict as fight, problem, or lesson. If conflict is fight, the immediate question is, how can I win it? Yeah. If, com if conflict is problem, the question is, how can I solve it? And if conflict is lesson, the question is, what can I learn from it? And there's an abyss between the first two perceptions and the latter. Uh, under conflict is fight, the question is, how can I win it? The way I prepare for conflict, engage in conflict, and assess the outcome of conflict are all based on winning a fight. Mm -hmm. And so the way, you know, if, if you look at our culture, uh, is having a lot of money considered to be strength or weakness? Strength? Is having weapon, <laughs> is having a weapon where the other person doesn't, is that considered to be strength or weakness? Yeah, well, both. 
Well, okay. It, it's well, yeah. We if you uh, coming from your work, you'd say probably weakness, but also we classically yeah. in this culture we think of, of you know a, a superpower as That's as right. you know they have strength because they have weapons, right? And under under conflict is fight. Uh, the question is how can I win it? And the way we perceive it, process it, respond to it, and, and assess the and assess the outcome are all based on that one characterization. Um, when we perceive conflict as problem, the question becomes, how can I solve it? And actually, and that's where the conflict resolution field came from, because resolution is about solving a problem. It's a step in the right direction. Conflict is fight, um, and, 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 and the, the conflict field actually came out of the nuclear era when we were worried about an arms race and destroying each other, you know, if, if somebody pressed the button and all of a sudden conflict resolution came out as let's shift our perception of conflict from conflict is fight because it's getting kind of scary out there. We've got these weapons that are so advanced that if we use them, we'll destroy everybody. So maybe we should stop thinking of conflict as fight. Let's shift to conflict as problem. So that's a step in the right direction. So now instead of trying to win fights, we're trying to solve problems. But the problem there is because we're still driven by fear. We're still obsessed with control. And so control is about resolving. And so oftentimes, instead of killing off each other there, we end up trying to kill off complexity so that we can claim victory and solve the problem. So conflict is fight was really destructive and not sustainable. Conflict as problem was a step in the right direction, conflict resolution. It took us away from fighting with each other and trying to get creative and do something different to interact with what we saw as the problem going on. But when we shift to conflict as lesson, conflict as lesson is the only perception of conflict that approaches conflict like the monk from a point of humility. Mm. Because it's not about winning or solving, it's about learning. Because yeah. winning says, I can do it. Get out of my way. Let me show you. Yeah. Solving says, I can do it. Get out of my way. Let me show you. Learning says, I don't know. Teach me. Mm-hmm. And it comes from a point of humility and vulnerability that says, you know what? I don't have all the answers. And I bet if push comes to shove, you don't either. And if we both approach conflict from that point of humility and from the po- that point of, of, of there might be something to learn from here. Mm-hmm. Now we're both open and our basis for interacting with each other even changes because when I walk into, you know, the best teacher in the world can't teach a student who doesn't think they have anything to learn. Right. And the worst teacher in the world can certainly teach a student something <laughs> if they at least have the openness of thinking that there's something to learn. So conflict is lesson is basically about approaching conflict with humility Kind of like the monk did. He was attacked yeah. with a challenge. Tell me the difference. Yeah. And he approached it with humility and told a story mm-hmm. without, uh, initially the insult was there, you know, with, you know, you, know, you disgust me. And he, and he got the response that said, aha, do you see what you're doing? Mm-hmm. You've closed yourself off. You've made the enemy, me the enemy. What, here's a, Hopefully this isn't too much of a curveball question, but I have a new a new client who called me uh, last week and said uh, that his main problem is that he's such a pushover. Uh, that's okay. That's my language, but he was saying he's so nice. This is his problem, like in his marriage. Um, he, like he was recently like rear-ended, and he like he got out and he's like, "Oh, I'm so sorry to the person and stuff." You know, on the flip side of someone that doesn't go to the fight mode, but they're just like, "Oh, it's all my fault," and I'm you know. Like what, just, I don't know, it's, maybe it's a curveball question. What, 
what's what's up with that whole thing? It's, it seems almost like the opposite of or like avoiding conflict through pretending nothing's going on or something. I mean, what's your your view of that? So so so, uh, and I'm just going to venture a guess into therapy that at some point, um, when somebody rear ends you. Um, what's going on in your mind? What are your, you know, you may have thoughts about it, but there are also feelings. And oftentimes somebody who gets out of the car with that, and again, I'm, I'm going to take liberty with an interpretation here, um, but but just, just as a way of, of uh, beginning to approach the question and, and, and play with it for a second. Um, so we might have thoughts about what happened, and that guy's response was a very nice response, but if you dug around for a while, you'd probably get at the fact that uh, beneath the surface, there's some anger. Yeah. This guy hit my car. Right. Yeah. He damaged my car. What the heck is going on? Right. And mm. it might be interesting to get curious, as Gaber Mate would say in his work with what he calls compassionate inquiry, uh, it might be uh, interested to get curious about why is it that re- I responded to what was clearly this other man's fault in hitting my car with such softness and apology? Mm. Is there anger underneath? Right. And why is it that I'm not able to express that anger? Right. And begin it, yeah. getting, yeah, beginning to get in touch with that might begin, and that which which speaks to something else. And again, I'm sorry if I go off in several directions here, but um, uh, Gaber Mate in his work uh, with um, uh, with uh, trauma talks about trauma as uh, the disconnection from the authentic self, mm-hmm. and when trauma takes over, we lose our ability. To, to be connected to ourselves, and we, we respond in ways that, that are not a, re, a real reflection of who we are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they say when somebody gets disassociated from their body, oftentimes they're above their body actually watching what's happening because they've, they've disconnected from it in some way. Mm-hmm. And when a person is not able to respond in what we would normally consider to be an understandable, authentic way, um, you know, like, like what, what would be the resp- first response? Okay. It might be anger. This guy hit my car, mm-hmm. but now you might say, well, if he, if he goes off as a raging maniac at that point, you might say that's a normal response, but now he needs anger management training. Okay. Mm-hmm. Anger might be the impulse, but is that the action? Mm-hmm. And if a person learns how to have anger, to name it, to feel it and not, and then be able to choose not to act out of it. Now we're, we're approaching somebody who is mentally uh, aware and conscious and healthy because they're able to have the anger but not act on it in a way that it's going to make the situation worse. Yeah. And again, because we're human, we're going to make mistakes with that too. Right. Yeah. I also wanted to see how, because I know you've done a lot of work on this and it's a particularly conflict-ridden field, how this translates into the very fraught relationships between men and women. And I'm thinking in particular of the Cuomo case where he's being accused of, in, of an environment of harassment and denigration mm. of women with a few sexual assaults thrown in. And... Then he says, well, look, I just did the things the old-fashioned way, times have changed, even though, of course, he f- funded a uh, and publicized himself as the ethical sexual arbiter of decency. But these questions come up all the time. 
How do you see them through a conflict literacy lens? So I guess the, the first thing that comes to mind, actually a lot of things come to mind, but the, the first thing, um, Gandhi, uh, Gandhi was, was also one of my mentors, at least through his books. Uh, Gandhi used to say that the means are the ends in embryo. As you choose your means, you get your ends. And then just to let us know he meant business with that statement, he followed it with, this is the iron law of the moral universe. So the means are the ends in embryo. As you choose your means, you get your ends. In this country, in this culture, when it comes to any problem, whether it's sexual harassment, sexual assault, or um, poverty, or uh, terror, or crime, uh, whatever, we've got, a, we've got a what on drugs? Yeah. We've got a what on crime? We've got a what on terror? We've got a war on all these different things, and, ba- and a war on poverty. And basically, this whole characterization of these things as wars is a fight to be won, uh, basically speaks a lot to the way we approach, you know, uh, not only internal conflicts, but conflicts in society. We gird our loins and say, we're under attack. We've got to do something to fight back uh, and to make a change in it. And, you know, this, in, you know, my, my reading of Gandhi uh, had a lot to do with, as I began to think about violence and, and Gandhi's definition of nonviolence, which was control of the self rather than control of the other. And I began to look at how I wanted to approach uh, the problem of sexual violence. And for a long time, it seemed like the approach to sexual violence education was what I would call the scared straight approach. We would have the local DA's office or the state police or somebody else in a position of authority in one of our institutions come into an audience full of college students and tell them, this is what the law says, this is what we're going to do to you if you get it wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, in kind of a scared straight approach right. to, okay, so do it right or we're going to get you. Mm-hmm. And what that, what that does to most people is that brings the defenses up and turns off the mind because now we're under attack. His, the, here's what I'm going to do to you if you get it wrong. <laughs> and if you're sitting in the audience and you've done some of the things that might be considered sexual harassment or sexual assault, you're definitely tuned out now because your defenses are up because basically they're saying something that puts me under attack here. Mm -hmm. So in my work with sexual violence education, uh, my research question was what would sexual violence education look like through a lens of nonviolence and co-creation? To me, to to answer another part of that question that we posed at the beginning, what is conflict literacy? Uh, To me, there are two principles uh, that uh, fundamental principles of conflict literacy. One is nonviolence, meaning you can't force, and the other is co-creation, meaning that those who have something to gain or lose need to have something to say in the process if you expect them to be committed to the outcome. Mm -hmm. So, my goal in doing sexual violence education was to unpack the issues around this problem in such a way that I disarmed the audience so that they would say, okay, nobody's here to attack you or accuse you, but we are here to help you understand the dynamics around the issue that we're dealing with here. Where does sexual violence come from? What's going on with this? How did this happen? And what can we do about it in our own lives and relationships? So what that immediately did with an audience was it brought the defenses down so that we can make what we're going to do here today an opportunity to learn and grow and change rather than an opportunity to see what we can do to avoid becoming one of the statistics, the crime statistics. 
either as a victim or an offender. So would you go into more detail about that? Because sexual violence is everywhere. And um, so people have to deal with it. And Me Too says, oh, no, you've shamed me. Well, I'll shame you right back because I, too, have a voice and I, too, will get you in trouble. Well, and, and, the, and the place to start is to say the angry response that the Me Too and the indignant response that the Me Too movement have, has, uh, has had is, first of all, completely understandable and legitimate, yes. and secondly, long, long, long overdue. Mm-hmm. Yes. So the fact, the fact that that response is there is completely understandable, but it's what you do with that energy once you have it. Um, is 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 the important thing, and do you know Gandhi used to say, um, "I've never believed in." Uh, you know, people talked about uh, his nonviolence as being passive, and he said, and he would say, "Nonviolence is anything but passive." Passive, he said. I always have believed in fighting in, against injustice. The question is, do I fight to punish or do I fight to change things? And I think Gandhi would argue, and I would argue as well, that, that nonviolence is about a fight to change and transform rather than to punish. So what would you do, for example, with the whole issue of the environment of sexual and other bullying in Andrew Cuomo's office or in the offices everywhere where people endure this? Well, to start with, what just happened uh, is part of what's needed to happen for a long time. There need to be consequences for behaviors. Yes. Because you know what? In nature, there are consequences. There's such a thing as gravity. And if I step out the window of my 17th floor of my apartment here, I will experience the one consequences. of the laws yes. of gravity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not a judgment on me, but it, it's, it's a natural <laughs> reaction to the reality of the physical universe. Yeah. So there need to be consequences. And at the same time, if all there are, and so let's say, okay, so Andrew Cuomo is removed from office. So there were consequences for his behavior. If that's all we do in that conflict, then any opportunities for learning and growth, uh, you know, go out the window there. Yeah. That, that was a necessary consequence. This is somebody who behaved in such a way that put, basically put the whole society in jeopardy because he basically modeled behavior that says this is okay. Yes. This way of treating people is acceptable and okay. And, you know, uh, p- way past the damage it did to the individuals involved is the damage it does to the culture when it delivers the message that this is the way it's acceptable to treat people. Yes. So that, that's incalculable damage that we can't begin to measure there. So we need to shut that behavior down. But what we do after that is, is what becomes important, which, which, which now begins to get into the whole, whole question of, you know, what do we do with incarcerations in prisons? Prisons are designed mm-hmm. to punish, not to, you know, not uh, to a, a, yeah. a penitentiary, penitence. What's penitence about? Penitence is about the awareness of wrong. And the transformation, and the the the, the willingness to repent, mm-hmm. to to in free mind, not by torture, but because you've been enlightened, say, oh, 
if I thought about that now, that's not the way I would want to behave. I don't want to do it this way anymore. I want to repent. I want to be different. I want to do it differently. And, and this, this is a great circle back to the beginning of the conversation in terms of what is conflict literacy. To me, when I first began thinking about what the conflict field was, to me, the conflict field exists to answer, to address the question of how we intervene to affect change. And if we intervene to affect change with violence and force, the means are the ends and embryo. What you sow is what you're going to reap. If we intervene to affect change by offering opportunities for learning and growth, then what we're going to get out of the other end of that conflict is learning and growth. So in, in the Andrew Cuomo case, just to, to end the answer on that, because I, I, I kind of go on, um, uh, part of the answer is consequences for behavior. Yes. This man has exhibited behaviors that are unacceptable in, in public office or by anyone. Right. And so we need to address that by saying he stepped out the window, so his career as a governor is going to fall. Right. Mm -hmm. But past that, we're going, to we're going to supply a net for him to land in that is going to have the loving embrace and arms of education that are going to help him ha at least have the opportunity. Whether or not he's ready, willing, and able to accept that opportunity yeah. to really learn and grow and change is out of our control. All we can do, just like any good teacher, all we can do is open the door and mm -hmm. say, I'd love you to walk through. Mm -hmm. And if you walk through, there's some, there are some gifts and jewels on the other side. Mm. But you need, that's why co-creation is important. Co-creation means I can't force you. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't take your piece of the responsibility, if, when you build a bridge from two sides, if one guy on the one shore says, okay, I'll build my piece of the bridge, but the other guy doesn't do it, then you're not going to have a complete bridge that's functional. Right. You, you know, both sides have to come together. And... Uh in something like that, there, there has to be a commitment to say, you know, and what makes me ready, willing, and able? Sometimes mm -hmm. it's the pain of those consequences. I'm, I'm curious. So I'm, sure. I'm, I'm curious from, so uh, I've, in my head, I've kind of compartmentalized away like things like sexual violence or sexual abuse and conflict. I, I tend to I almost just think of them as like one is one is like a normal, well, I guess sexual violence is normal too, but like conflict is this sort of normal, you know, everybody, there's always like a tension and irritation and disagreement or whatever. And then there's sort of like violating, you know, like sexual abuse is just like this bigger thing. But I guess, so this is interesting to just sort of think of it as part of a conflict spectrum or something. But uh, going back to your, the, the consequences piece, I guess I'm, I'm just going to sort of say a thing and just uh, any reaction. You sure. Because I, I think, um, so when I, I coach parents a lot working with families and this, the term natural consequences comes up a lot more these days and like, you know, a natural consequence to like, if you, um, you know, an artificial consequence is if, if a kid climbs a tree and the parent said, you can't, now you're on timeout for a week, a natural consequence would be you fall out of the tree and you like hurt your arm. And now you've learned that's why right. you don't climb that high into the tree, right? Hopefully yep. you don't like break your arms or something. But so, sure. so like a natural, I guess in this, in the same sense, like something that's been bothersome to me around the realm of, I guess, well, from sexual abuse to all kinds of other kinds of interpersonal violence is that there's this really, um, I think there's a silencing effect from a lot of sides of this. And I think especially for men 
where because of the severity of the legal consequences for something like, uh, you know, I don't know, anything from rape, incest, like down the line of the the list of the actual Mm -hmm. sort of criminal um, behaviors, I think that when, um, and I don't, this is probably not a great idea to say, well, let's just decriminalize sexual abuse. But I think one, <laughs> one, one really, uh, one big problem though, is that when the consequence is actually legalistic and, and less so maybe social, that I think there's the, the state apparatus sort of looming there. If we think of the prevalence of sexual abuse, right? I mean, um, that, that it's, it's in, in my, in my mind, it would make a lot more sense instead of saying, well, here, the consequence, like you were saying, you get the DA and you get the cops and it's like a scared straight thing of saying like, okay, what we're going to, what we're going to do instead of this, like, we're going to lock you up. There's a fear of locking you up or something like that is, is a restorative justice sort of thing where like you have to sort of be confronted by all who are impacted by the thing. And then then the natural consequence to that would be like, you're going to feel really ashamed of yourself because you did the thing. Like once it's it's out, right. Yeah. Yeah. But, but well, and not always, obviously, right? Yeah, and I've, yeah. I've worked, I've seen that as well. Sometimes it's yes. like, oh, the bitch is lying, and da 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 da, and all these things. Yeah. But, but to me, like that would actually make a little bit more sense. Like if we if we change the culture to the extent where it's like it's normalized that you no, know, we we're just going to come together and this is going to get talked about, and and not not like we don't need to do something like you know the probation or the you know the legal system or judicial processes. But anyway, this is just a. A, a rant on, you know, sure. there's the legalistic consequences versus the social and being confronted and, and having to actually um, understand and feel and then move toward maybe changing perception of, of behavior. So any reaction yes. to that? Yeah, sure. Well, and w- w- one thing comes up is um, I, I, I gave a talk one time where uh, I was asked to speak about Title IX and what was going on. And this was before the Me Too movement had happened. Um, mm-hmm. I, I left 30 years of sexual violence education on college campuses uh, within months of when Me Too happened uh, shortly afterward. And I, I left to, for a sabbatical to do some other work. And um, But I, I was asked to speak on um, the effects of Title IX on you know, uh, culture and change and sexual violence and all that. And just and review what, what Title IX is for our listeners. Uh, t- Title IX was uh, initially put in place to uh, equalize funding uh, in in sports and in mother, many other areas on college campuses uh, because the, the idea was that uh, not funding women's sports in the, to the same degree that you fund men's sports is a form of discrimination because yes. basically you're saying that one one uh, one gender is more more important than the other and worthy uh, of these funds than the other. So Title Mm -hmm. IX was about, uh, you know, equaling the playing field. Uh, And what it eventually uh, began to move into was an understanding that, well, you know, when half the population on campus is subjected to sexual violence, and it wasn't just Mm -hmm. the female half because we know that, you know, sexual violence happens in gay and straight relationships. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, to 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 all 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 genders you can name, uh, it's it's something that's out there. Um, but the idea was that um, uh, sexual violence is actually also a form of discrimination because it creates an unsafe environment yes. for a part of the population to live in. And so, uh, Title IX went from uh, initially changing the funding models for sports and other activities on campus to uh, addressing problems of sexual violence and sexual harassment on campus. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, something ended up happening with Title IX a number of years ago that I, I ended up, the, the term I coined for it was what I called the weaponization of Title IX. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the thing was that 
Um, well, and, and let me let me just get to the the, the statement that I made yes. that gets to the essence of the point here, which is that um, laws don't change culture. Laws point to the need for culture to change. When we write a new law, basically what we're saying, I mean, that, that enables us to have teeth and consequences and we can lock you up, we can fine you, we can do all kinds of bad things to you if you get it wrong. But that in and of itself is not going to create the change. Mm. Laws actually point to the need for culture to change. And basically, once, once we have the new law, we say, ah, we've discovered that, you know, you know, throwing freshmen in the dryer is not a good idea. So we're going to make a rule for freshmen on for, for college students on campus that you can't do that. Okay. So along with that, if, if all we do is have the rule, that's going to be some element of deterrence. But we also have to have some education that you know, uh, gives people an enlightened self-interest as to why they wouldn't want to behave in a certain way. And when the education, this is why all politicians, and they're actually right when they say it, education is really where all this needs to start. And a lot of people say, ah, that's a soft approach. That's not really doing anything about anything. Actually, that's the only thing that's really doing anything about anything. And, and can I tell one last story on this very point that, that, that drives it home? Good. Uh, 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 C.S. Lewis, uh, Murder in the Cathedral. There's a there's a, a segment in in uh, in that uh, short story written by C.S. Lewis where uh, there's a character by Thomas Beckett who's being tempted by the devil, and the devil is saying, "Oh yes, be a saint, be a martyr. You'll be remembered under the ages. They'll build statues to you know to honor you, and children will tell stories about you." And he's being taken in by all of this. And then the great line. And the last of these is the greatest treason, to do the right thing for the wrong reason. If the only reason I don't rape, pillage, and plunder is because of what the law is going to do to me if I get it wrong, then we live in a very scary society. Mm. Most of us don't dine and dash, not because we're worried about getting locked up for, for you know, eating a meal in a restaurant without paying for it. Mm. Most of us don't do that out of an, a sense of enlightened self-interest, mm. that I don't want to live in a world where that's the way people behave, mm -hmm. because that creates a jungle. Maybe uh, another way to put that is, so I used to work with juvenile sex offenders, um, or I mean, the, the term, we try to change this term because that's a, a legalistic term, but like a sexually abusive youth or something. And like a thing that um, I would try to say to them that this is, a, I think, really similar concept to what you're saying is there's, I created in my head kind of three tiers of, uh, I guess, consequences uh, where there's sort of like legal and then there's social and then there's sort of individual or moral. Right, that the, the legal is like that really big, broad one that like everyone's really afraid of that one. The social one is like you know your friends are gonna just excommunicate you, or your parents will say I'm kicking you out or something. The individual moral side is just like I feel so bad, I'm not gonna do the thing, or I feel so ashamed of what I did or something. Right, mm -hmm. that if you can't get to that moral part where I just feel like this is an immoral thing, I don't want to do stuff that misaligns with my values, then you don't really have to worry about the other two layers. You don't have to worry about even what the law is or what yep. or what people yep. will do or say to you. Right, but a, a, a tricky thing that I found is is that um, you know in this cognitive way if I explain this to some kid or some adult man or something explaining it never did shit <laughs> excuse my language but like yep. like like that you you know you could break down this framework and they say oh yeah wow totally right and they can kind of 
you know, bullshit their way out of things. Like, how do you, in your experiences, you've been doing this a long time, like what is, uh, I almost feel like on an emotional or affective level, you know, to really like integrate things. What have you found helpful, I think, for men in particular to, um, instead of saying, I'm afraid of the cops, I'm afraid of losing my career, like Cuomo, that I'm just, I'm just afraid of being a person that, that like feels bad about hurting people, right? Like what actually leads to that transformation in your experience? Well, and um, I'll, I'll tell you, my, my, uh, I, I struggled with that for a long time because uh, what I learned about myself along the way is the first place I go um, to, quote unquote, solve a problem or learn and grow and change is my head, is my intellect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and that's nice. Yes. <laughs> and you can, yes, it, it can be helpful, but it, I, I, would, I would generally say in my own experience, I've learned that that's helpful mm-hmm. but not transformative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, I've learned intellectually different ways of doing things, but uh, in many cases that hasn't stopped me from continuing to be exactly the way I was before. Uh, it's only mm-hmm. when I've been able to get down to an emotional level of understanding what's going on inside of me that's driving me to go in a certain direction mm-hmm. that I gain the awareness to be able to, and again, this goes back to Gabor Mate's work with trauma and the reattachment to the authentic self. Um, when I'm able to reattach to the authentic self, that's when I gain agency to really make change. Mm-hmm. If I'm detached from that authentic self, then it's, again, it's like I'm having this, it, it's, uh, if, it's Rip Van Winkle before he woke up. If I haven't awakened from the nightmare of my history yet, yes. um, then I'm going to keep doing the same thing the way I always did it, even though intellectually I know I don't want to be this way. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, you know, a beautiful thing that Gabor Mate said is that, you know, the, the, the good news about the authentic self is that it can never be damaged or it, ne- it can never be destroyed or even damaged. It can only go dormant. Yes. Which means once you awaken, um, it'll it'll show up again once you reattach to the self to the authentic self. Um, your capacity to have agency and to actually learn and grow and change is going to, uh, in a, in a sense, rejuvenate. And I'm I'm uh, I'm putting words in his mouth there, but no, but that that is a very important thing. In the book, there's a book by Susie Schwartz called Dreams from the Monster Factory, because she worked with violent offenders. And she had been a lawyer for offenders and found out she defended people, then they'd just do it again. And she designed a different kind of prison system where there were no bars, where the guards were among the other people, where everyone had to go into therapy. And everybody had to also learn to be literate because an enormous percentage of people who commit violent crimes aren't literate. Mm -hmm. And she reduced the experiment only went on for a few years but it reduced recidivism going having to go back to prison by 75%. It was so successful that they never did it again because they have this discipline and punish idea but yep. they found that by being in therapy groups they were separate groups the men's groups and the women's groups if the guys said i just saw red they said no you didn't you knew you were strangling her come on, we know what was going on. Mm-hmm. Let's go back and trace, where does that come from? Mm-hmm. And yes. honestly had to 
figure out what was going on inside of them. Mm. The women in the prison were mainly adjuncts to some man's crime that they knew was wrong. And Mm -hmm. why did they go along? Mm -hmm. But it was a combination of, they were in a restricted environment, but not a punitive one. Mm -hmm. And they had to work on improving themselves in therapy and group therapy and also in education because they didn't have basic skills. And so, you know, it speaks to your idea, Bob, about conflict literacy. They got to know the conflicts that were inside of them that allowed them to do things that were in conflict with the ethics of the society of which they were a part and which got them into trouble. But it wasn't the fact that they were in trouble, which they knew because they were in jail, that was a problem. It was what drove them to the trouble and to work it out together. It's a really good book that dreams from the monster factory where she describes that experience. But, you know, I think we do live in a declining empire, declining because of its wars that take up more of the budget than anything kind. And so that it's really important on both the personal level to deal with, see conflict as a a potential to learn and also international conflict and the kind of conflicts people are having around sexual behavior as where is this coming from, which has enormous powerful social roots and profiteering the one way the United States is king in the world is armaments. So you'd have to look at the stature in society for making enormous profit. Yes. And what it does for and to people, but that every uh, working on every level to resolve a conflict is an enormous contribution from the personal level to the mega political level. So it's really an important thing what you've done. Well, and the you know the the good news for everybody. I mean, it, it's easy to look around the world today and see a lot of bad news. And yep. uh, you know, I mean, basically, um, we have an unsustainable ideology that is literally eating us alive. Uh, our environment, our politics, um, our use of resources on 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 you know uh, on war, <laughs> among other things, um, and. But the other, the other side of that coin is if you look around you, um, look out your window and all the ingenious creative inventions and, you know, structures. And I mean, the, the amount of things that human beings have done in a creative way to, uh, to, to create the world that we have uh, speaks to the capacities that we have. Now, if we would just apply that toward our relationships with ourselves and each other, mm. Um, wow. Wouldn't that be fun? I mean, and the, the, the point there is that, that, that that's good news. We already have what we need. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's a great Leo Tolstoy, the kingdom of God is within you. We are, we are already given what we need. <laughs> it's already there. Right. We just have um, to activate it. And yes, we need I, help in so doing. 
I just wanted to comment on the time. We're about 10 minutes over the hour. Yeah. And oh, I just wanted to, no, it's okay. It's a really it's good great. discussion. I wondered, uh, Bob, if you, you know, uh, sort of either your own website or work or books or just projects you're involved in or are excited about that you want to maybe plug for listeners who've stuck around this far. And well, also put it on our, we'll put it, give us yeah, stuff the, the to put notes. on our show notes. I'll tell you because it's it's a it's a place that I've been spending a lot of time recently. I'm going to point to uh, Gabor Mate, who has written a series of books. He's a Hungarian-born Canadian physician who has written uh, at least half a dozen books or more. Um, one called "When the Body Says No" about the mind-body connection for all physical and mental illness. Uh, just fascinating work, um, and uh, an, another book that since since uh, addiction is huge in our culture as well. He's written a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts that basically talks about his work as a physician with drug addicts in uh, uh, the homeless district of Vancouver uh, in British Columbia. And uh, he developed an approach to his work. And this is where the monk's humility comes in. Um, he had a reputation uh, and a sense of himself as being a good, competent physician and began working with homeless drug addicts and found that he was failing utterly. And what he ended up realizing, what the reason he was failing utterly was because he was judging them. His attitude toward them was based on a sense that, you know, they're not really important. I'm this big, important healer mm -hmm. physician. And when he began to change his approach toward them, they began to let their defenses down and change their approach toward him. And some wonderful healing began to happen. And he developed a process uh, that actually somebody else helped him to, to work out called compassionate inquiry. Mm. And uh, I would characterize his work as laser-focused nonviolence directed towards self and other. So that's a wonderful way, if anyone wanted to get a sense of how this stuff works in real life, um, that's one place uh, that you could go to begin to, to see this stuff at work. Uh, and as far as my books or anything I've written, um, I'll get back to you. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And thank all our Patreon listeners for making this possible. And look, we understand not everybody has discretionary income to share, but urge others to listen as well. And that's a great contribution yeah. too. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, thank you so much, Bob. And uh, we'll put all your info in the show notes if folks want to go to your website and learn more about you and your work. Uh, thanks for the Gabor Mate uh, plug also, where I think Harry and I are both big fans as well. So. Yes, indeed. Yes. Anyway, um, yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Bob. Thank My you. My pleasure. Thanks okay. for having me. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolff and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. Capitalism Hits Home is a sort of broader over overhead view. It explores the way that capitalism shapes our personal lives, our psyches, our relationships, our families, and it looks particularly at the sea change in American personal life as all Americans but the top 10 or 20 percent of Americans have our security and our chance for a future 
become as precarious as it always was for minorities and families headed by women. It's not just in your head, and capitalism hits home are definitely complementary. And if listeners would like to check out Capitalism Hits Home, Harriet, where should they go to find it? Either on YouTube or Democracy at Work or on my own website, harrietfraud.com.